Well, good morning, Redemption Church. And it's... It's nice to know you remember. All right, so... No, can I tell you in all sincerity why I love uh, this time of year? Um, it's, it's like it's a galvanizer for our community where it doesn't matter if you're religious or non-religious, black, white, liberal, conservative. For three and a half hours, we are all in agreement on one thing. That's a pretty cool thing within a community. So that's why I love football season. Kraken are my number one team. So that's why I love hockey season as well. But uh, I love this time of year because it's just nice to kind of have this sense of cohesion in a culture that seems so divided all the time, right? So it's nice to have a little reprieve there. So excited about that. Good first week. We're going to see what happens with our team this year. But that's not why we're here today. Yes, we are here because we're doing this entire series, this idea of the Psalms of David, and we're calling it Dave's Playlist. And Dave's playlist is looking at at least a handful of the 150 different songs that shape both the worship and the wisdom of the people of God. And the people of God, they're known as the Israelites or the nation of Israel. And I've shared in this series how the name Israel literally means wrestles with God. And, and I think the Psalms captured the essence of that. Sometimes you're wrestling against him, and you see that in the Psalms. Sometimes you're wrestling with him and for him, and all of that's in there. In fact, I find in my own journey of faith so often that there is that push and pull. Sometimes there's resolve. Sometimes there's conflict. You have questions, and then you have answers, and then you cycle back through again. And that's how we all grow. See, we don't, we don't just simply kind of park, and that's it. And in fact, even for me, in my own kind of theological persuasion, it's known as the Reformed tradition. And part of the essence of that is always reforming. You never just stop growing, stop learning, stop moving through the churning process of becoming more like Christ. And so that's the heart of what we are doing as a community of faith. We're seeking to wrestle with, grow in, and ultimately glorify God in what we do. And so even as we look at the Psalms, I love it because, again, you, you see that heart so often played out. And today, today is going to be a very special song in relationship to Dave's playlist. And to me, it's special because it's not simply a man wrestling with God, nor is it a nation wrestling with God. But from a certain point of view, and you're going to have to stick with me on this one, what we're going to see today is God wrestling with God which sounds really ominous and strange, but you're going to see where it goes in a minute. So, I say from a certain point of view, I say from a certain type of psalm, and this psalm is very, very unique in the 150. In fact, some Bible scholars call this psalm the fifth gospel. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Psalm 22. And that's where we're at today. And Psalm 22 is all about the son of David, the son of God, wrestling with God and, and struggling through this sense of tragedy and triumph. And we're going to kind of walk through this in an expedited fashion, but I hope that it captures the essence of it. Now, I'm going to get ready to pray here in a second, but before I do, I want to remind you that we have an app, and in the app, there are notes you can follow along with. All the passages are in there. You can email those notes to yourself later so that you can go back and look at this. But I just want to confess as I go into this, this is going to be one of the most frustrating messages for me, just personally. And here's what I mean by that. It is so beautiful and so profound, and there's so much depth, and I can't even begin to capture it. Like, that was my frustration this week. I'm, I'm writing notes, and I'm taking ideas down, and I'm like, I'm going to fail before I start. 
because it's so rich. And I just can't grab all that's in there. And so in that sense, it's a personal frustration, but I hope by God's grace, uh, he will use this as we wrestle through and look at this incredible psalm that mirrors not only something in the life of the psalmist, but certainly in the life of Christ. And so right now, I'm gonna go ahead and pray. Pray for all of us today to set all our hearts, and then we're gonna go right into the psalm itself. Jesus, I thank you that you have granted us permission to wrestle Right? Like, I love that idea that, that there is this sense in which you can never be stagnant. There's always the push and pull. There's always the struggle and the relief, and then the struggle and the relief. And yet that's the, the means of how you develop us. Right? It's almost like we have to be under pressure and tension to then grow endurance and grit, and ultimately to understand the power of grace. And so today, I pray as we look at a psalm that for you was deeply personal— that it will be reminding us of just what it is you did and gave for us. And so, Jesus, we thank you, we love you, and we need you this day in your good name. Amen. So, Psalm 22, it is tricky business from a biblical scholarship perspective. And, and here's what I mean by this idea of tricky business. Uh, oftentimes, when we look at a psalm, we can cross-pollinate it to some historical event, for example, like in the life of David. So we can go, oh, we can look at 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel or something of that nature, and we can find the event in David's life that parallels to the psalm. When we get to Psalm 22, we can't figure that out. We can't find that story someplace that locks it into place. Because Psalm 22 is foundationally an executioner's psalm. In other words, this person has been captured, they're being held, they're about to be executed for what they're, they've done or they're doing or whatever else, and that was never David. He would be on the run, but he was never captured and put under an executioner's noose, so to speak. So in one sense, we go, we don't know what to do with that. Another thing about this psalm that makes it so unique is that oftentimes when David was on the run or had an enemy— Part of his song that he would put as a lyric would basically be, God, destroy them. God, vindicate me. God, wipe them out. God, kill them in some capacity. That was pretty common for David as a warring king. But in this psalm, the person who seems to be the author behind it to some degree identifies the foes, faces the foes, but is never angry at their foes in any way. And that's sort of perplexing. But then by the end of the psalm, you're going to see a celebration— and it's a celebration not simply for the one that was suffering. It's a celebration not simply for the nation of Israel, but it's going to be a celebration by which every nation and every family on the earth celebrates uh, why this person that's being described in the Psalms, uh, why they're celebrating as well. So it's going to end with a universal nature to it, not simply a particular nature to one individual. From this you can sort of see where it's not simply descriptive of the life of David, but rather it is predictive of a future event. And if we were just upfront about the whole thing, we would say it's a vivid song of Jesus on the cross as he faces all of the hostility and hatred of the world, as he goes through all of that. It's really a psalm about him a full thousand years before he faces that cross. That's what makes this so profound, and frankly, why for me, this is going to be such a challenging thing to try to capture, because there's so much beauty in this. Now, to navigate this, uh, the psalm breaks along two different lines, right? First, it starts in the negative, and then it kind of moves into the positive. 
And so we're going to start with that first idea, which is the cry for help. That's the first 21 verses of the psalm. And this is a pretty standard opening when you read all the different psalms. But this time, it's not simply directed regarding enemies or regarding circumstances. This opens in a direct reference to God himself, the psalmist, the personality behind the psalm, the emotion, the psyche behind the psalm is asking God a question. And the question is the first point in your notes. God, why are you so far? Why are you so far from me? Verse one, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Now you're going to notice right there, uh, there is red letters. And then there's some addresses below from Mark and Matthew. And all of you as good Bible students, I know you're like, hey, I know somebody else that said this. Not just David in the Psalms, but you know that Jesus says this. In his native Aramaic, he spoke those words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and so I think it's interesting because what I do believe is that Jesus is God, right? We believe that as Christians. That's a part of our foundational doctrinal belief. And so weirdly enough, you have God the Son begging a question of God the Father, Right? The divine son to the sovereign father wanting to know, where are you? Where have you gone? Why have you turned your back on me and my hour of greatest need? See, David writes this of something that he's sort of aware of somehow, but then we see Jesus embodying the concept as he's there in the scene of the cross. And yet what I appreciate about this in part is it's also something that I think we all understand. That, that, that question Right? Whenever you've been uh, facing grief or hardship or uncertainty or pain, that question, why have you abandoned me, may come to your own being. Right? People ask the question, where is God when it hurts? Well, that's what the psalmist is capturing here. That is what the Son of God voiced on the cross, and perhaps your own heart has kind of been plagued by that very question. So in light of feeling in the dark, the psalmist pivots, feeling dread. They try to retaliate against the dread in verse three. So where are you? Why are you so far? Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and they were saved. They trusted in you and they were never disgraced. See, I love this because the psalmist is grounding the current threat in historic remembrance. So we've seen this throughout the Psalms, like right now when it hurts, what do I do? Well, you can look to the future and worry more, or you can look to the past and find relief. Like God's shown up before, so as I look forward, perhaps he's going to show up again. And so he talks about this historic deliverance, and he's like, they trusted and you rescued, they cried and you saved, they relied and you never disgraced them. Right, so the weight of the present, they're trying to offload it to the remembrance of the past so as to face the future. I love that. Here's the tough thing about that process. Um, we're not really great at free will, honestly. 
What I mean by this is uh, when you feel anxiety, hurt, fear, can you just shut it off? Like a light switch? No, we don't have that capacity. You ever been really worried about something and then somebody says to you, hey man, don't worry about it. What great advice. Yes, I'll stop worrying about it. Click, I'll just walk on. Right? It doesn't work that way. You have to wrestle, just like Israel, just like the name. You have to struggle and strive and work it through. And the same challenge is being outlined in the psalm, right? Starts off, God, why have you abandoned me? Yet, I know you're holy. I know you will deliver. But, verse 6, I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads and they say, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. See, what you're seeing here in these verses is the tug of war. Where? Oh, you're here. Where? Again. How many have seen The Fiddler on the Roof? Nice. This is Tevia. Right here. On the one hand, but on the other hand, right? That's what's going on. Like, on the one hand, why have you abandoned me? But on the other hand, you tend to rescue. But on the other hand, what's happening before us? I feel lost. But on the other hand, verse 9, yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb, and you led me to trust at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment that I was born. Do not stay far from me, for trouble is near, and no one else can help me. Again, you just see the back and forth, right? It's just like trust, fear, trust, fear. It's kind of in this whole thing. And so he has these current theological confusions, but these historic experiential kind of recollections, and they're, they're mashing together. But there is before the psalmist, and I would say by extension, the Christ, this ever-present present. And the ever-present present is the second thing in your notes. He's asking the question, God, why are you so far when my enemies are so near. There's a juxtaposition between the divine and the destroyers here. And so he's really trying to understand like, hey, I'm godly, the destroyers are in my face, and you who are the, is the deliverer, you seem super distant from me. And so it seems that the enemies of the servant of God are closer than the God of the servant facing his enemies. And so he says in verse 12, my enemies surround me like a herd of bulls, right? The fierce bulls of Bashan. They've hemmed me in like lions. They open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. See, this first description of the enemies is just their sheer power as brute beasts over this psalmist or mirroring the Christ. And what you see is that the physical and psychological result is staggering. Verse 14. My life is poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like sun-baked clay, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. See, in the original language, this is really, really vivid. It, it almost has moments of feeling crass. 
saying, I'm immobilized. My body literally aches from head to toe. When it says my heart melts like wax, literally it reads trickling inside my entrails. It's like diuretic almost, right? Total insomnia. There is malnourishment. There is dehydration, right? If you've ever been super stressed, high anxiety, deep grief, you know this one. Right? It's just weird how the intellectual elements can literally translate into the body retaliating. Just can't take it. That's the picture. Thus he says, You've laid me in the dust and left me for dead. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. My enemies stare at me and they gloat. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. And so the image of beasts and their power translates into predators and prey. You have this idea of gangs and packs of dogs. But again, you're, you can instantly translate this into the scene of the cross. I mean, this is why what you see in Psalm 22 is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament describing the things of Jesus on the cross that day. And so it's a pitiful state. And those who are there, they're gloating. They're just mocking. They're cheering the misery of the state, right? It's incredible. No mercy, no empathy, no care, utter contempt, Right? And so he's desperate for God to be his aid and his intervention. Thus, there's the final line of prayer. Oh, Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. Snatch me from the lion's jaws and from the horns of these wild oxen. See, what I love is we're only halfway kind of through the psalm, and yet he's not lashing out at God. He's pleading with God, begging God to show up. That is a little uncustomary. Sometimes in the Psalms about this point, there's a real frustration with God. This time, there's a real just crying out to God, a sustained campaign for the intervention of the Father. Now, as it sits in its historic context, we don't know exactly what happened next. Whatever was initially generating Psalm 22 in the life of David, we don't know how he was rescued or fully what he's thinking about in, again, the Old Testament world that this is initially written into, all we know is that he was rescued. He was rescued because there is a concluding part of the Psalms that's like, hey, I know what rescue feels like. So in that sense, he sees deliverance from the things that he was fearing. But when you parallel it to Jesus, the story's a little different. What we see in his story is that he was not delivered from death, but rather, the New Testament says he was delivered unto death. And his enemies, they don't fail in their task of execution. Rather, we see that his enemies, from religion to Rome to the masses to even the disciples, they all abandon him. They leave him in the dust. They let him die, right? So, everybody fulfills their task of killing the Christ. And yet, an act that they enacted in their rebellion, in the clever, wise, upside-down and backwards mind of God, he engineered it for their redemption. In other words, he uses their sin 
to literally undo their sin. He uses death to undo death. Like only God comes up with this stuff, right? And so it's amazing how in that scene of the cross, he exchanges this idea of fierceness for forgiveness. He undoes hate with love. And he moves condemnation to salvation because this is exactly what Jesus sought to do. And thus in this, God didn't simply leave him on the tree or leave him in the dust for dead. No, what we actually see in the story is that God vindicates the person of Christ three days later. God raises him from the dead, conquers death by bringing him back from the dead and into life so that he can give life to all, moving us from death to life as well. This is the promise. So he delivers the deliverer of the world three days later. Incredible story. It's the very center of our faith that Jesus was dead and rose again. And it's this idea that then is mirrored in the second part of the psalm. It's the celebration from help. Or the celebration because God has helped, right? Now recall how the psalm started. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The words that were on the lips of Jesus. What we then come to in the second part of the psalm is something really interesting. And it's going to shift your gears a little bit, maybe grind them a bit as well. But it's the third thing in your notes. It's the realization that God never abandons. God never abandons. And if there's any promise for you to claim today, that's the one. When you're like, where are you? When it hurts, where have you gone to? Why have you left me? He's like, I've never left. I've never abandoned. I've never turned away from you. I'm always with you. Present, active, hearing, caring. Psalm 22, verse 22. He says, because you've rescued me, that's the context here, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among all the assembled people, the nation of Israel. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. Why should they do this? This is the clincher, verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard him when he cries to him. This is one of the most incredible things to me in the psalm. It really is, right? Now, for the psalmist himself, for David, right? You can understand why there's such celebration, right? And he's celebrating for the family of Israel. He's like, here's what I've learned. God never abandons. God never turns his face. God never stops listening to his people. He does not despise or abhor the afflicted. No, he is with them in the mix. That's the psalmist. But when I poured it into the life of Jesus on the cross, calling out, it raises a question. I think it's a profound question. On the cross of Christ, in the scene where the son is in agony, and he's abhorred by everybody watching. And he's calling out to his father. The question that we have to wrestle with is in that moment, is God like, nope, I'm against you too. Because I think sometimes when we read it, we go, that's exactly what's going on. Both heaven and earth are all abhorring the Christ right there. Like, I think that's kind of what we wonder sometimes. I used to believe that. I used to believe that, you know, on that scene that day, Jesus stands alone apart from the Father, apart from the world. But it was this psalm that made me go, is that the story? Am I truly abandoned that way? 
by heaven and earth. I mean, is that the space that Jesus is in? I think Jesus is asking my father, why have you abandoned me? And, and both he's God and human and simultaneous, like I don't understand the mystery of that. He's probing that question. But the thing we should walk away with is the promise of the father, I've never abandoned. I've never turned away. I've never stopped listening. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says this in verse 19. It says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. See, I, I look at that and I go, that is so profound for me. How near was the Father to the Son? The Father was in the Son, reconciling him. As Jesus struggles, the Father is in his midst. That is so powerful, right? It is. And so it's room for celebration. The Old Testament psalmist celebrates. Jesus celebrates the Father and does the Father's will in that moment. We all can celebrate because of what Jesus has done. And now the Father was in the Son to reconcile the world to himself. From this we can celebrate in concert, verse 25. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. Right? So this gives us this portrait of what Jesus does. It creates worship for the world. Here the nation of Israel can worship what God has done in Christ. Here the psalmist writing about a thousand years down the road can celebrate there's something coming where it will be a radical occasion for celebration. But it extends beyond just the assembly of Israel, and that's number four in your notes. It's the realization that not only does God never abandon, but he actually rescues all. He expands it beyond the borders of Israel. Which is pretty powerful because, again, the psalm is like David. He had a lot of national enemies, right? Like, he didn't like these people over there and those people over there. And he'd go to war with a lot of other people that weren't Israel. He'd even go to war with some Israel sometimes. But the Spirit guides the pen here and, and kind of goes outside of kind of David's own personality to actually bring the nations in as worshipers. Look at verse 27. This is so cool. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him, right? All the families of the nations will bow down before him for royal power belongs to the Lord and he rules all the nations. Here's what's cool about this. It's in the middle of two bookends. So the first bookend early in the book of Genesis chapter 12, God says, you know, I got a plan, Abraham. And my plan is through you, I'm gonna bless all the nations, and then we have David writing here about this coming one who's going to do this thing for the sake of the nations. And then I fast forward to the other bookend toward the end. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2. He speaks of the cross and Jesus' sacrifice. And it says, when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's like, that's where it's going. So it starts, it, it has this middle, and that's where it's going. And Paul celebrates that. He celebrates. 
Even one of the earliest Christian hymns recorded in the New Testament from the book of Colossians says, for God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Again, how far was God? He was in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of the blood of the cross. I love this, man, because it just centralizes it. It's what Jesus did for us, for the world, that the psalmist celebrates, that Paul celebrates, that we celebrate. Now, when David writes this, he sees dimly here, right? Uh, He he can't understand the full cosmic scope of what Jesus is going to do, but he writes to it. Perhaps in light of this future reality of Philippians chapter 2, David in the Spirit writes verse 29, All of the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Now this is like a really hard, like it's contested text. Like we're not quite sure what to do with the original language of it, but it seems to kind of cover the bases. From the prosperous to the poor to the past, man, they will all worship, right? But also all future generations. Verse 30, our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those who are not even yet born. And they will hear about all that he has done. Here's my concluding challenge to the end of that. This promise that, man, we're, gonna, we're supposed to take this beyond our generation to the next. How does that happen? How is that last part accomplished? You should be sitting there right now saying, me, I do that. I continue that. I share that. I'm the emissary and ambassador of that. I've been touched. I've been moved. I've been forgiven. I've been changed. And thus, I must tell. See, we are the ones that get that great joy of passing this message along. Look what God has done. Look how he's blessing the nations of the earth. Look how he's reclaiming all things to himself. Look how we get to share that message of reconciliation. Like, that's the heart of the whole thing before us. That we get to be the ones who say, you know what? I know what a forgiven life looks like. I know what a freed life looks like. I know what a reconciled and changed life looks like. I know how life is better with Jesus because I knew life apart from Jesus. Life apart from Jesus is death. Life with Jesus is life. Life abundant, life full, just as he says in John 10, 10. That's the heart of it. And so we have the privilege of fulfilling what verses 30 and 31 are all about. We go on to share. We go on to tell. And so maybe even that, and that the, the question becomes, uh, who are you telling? How are you telling? Does your, your life reflect the, the, the joy and love and peace of the Spirit? Does your life reflect the stuff of Jesus to the world? Because I honestly look at the life of Jesus and go, incredibly attractive. I, I get to hang out with a lot of disbelieving people, especially since I'm a trainer at the gym. You know what? They all really are interested in Jesus. And they so much want to see us embody this this wonderment of who Jesus is. Because it's so attractive to see Jesus in action in the lives of people. So we get to do that. It's our privilege. In fact, I close with a broader reading of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. Right? So again, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, right? Right? 
He's given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we, you, I, us, are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Is that what we embody? Is that what we live? I believe so, and I believe we could do it more. I believe we should do it more. I believe we can do it more. And so right now, I just want to ask all of you to bow your heads. And as you bow your heads, to close your eyes and just kind of center for a moment on what it is we've kind of traversed. And again, I, 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 I still feel like, man, I, I did that as clumsy as any human could. I, I think there's so much more beauty that I can't tap into, but my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will do that in you in such a way that, man, it just galvanizes you, it encourages you, it inspires you to realize this is what Jesus has done for us so that we can go share what he's done for us with others. And so for those of us who follow Jesus, again, my encouragement is who are you you sharing that with like who are you trying to take this to who are you seeing reconciled or you're hoping to see reconciled who are you being an ambassador to on behalf of christ it means living it as much as it means sharing it those have to come together right so you got to figure out like who do i want to get this to because i love god and love them so much right that's the first thing the second is maybe some of you are here this morning or you're watching online or maybe you're going to watch later down the road or whatever else and you're like, man, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not a Christian. But, but I'm hearing what Jesus has done and how Jesus was willing to face the hatred of humanity. Take that on himself. Die a sinner's death. Die my death as a sinner to give me life. If you're sensing God's drawn your life and you're like, man, I want to follow Jesus, today's your day. Where you acknowledge, Jesus, I have been writing my own rules. I've been going by the beat of my own drum. I have been choosing my own priorities in life and they're not in alignment with yours. I've been living my life apart from you and now, Jesus, I want you to live in my life and live my life through me in a very different way. I want you to forgive me my sins. I want you to start your life in me in such a way that it brings transformation. And with that, a reallocation of life's resources. I was going against you, now I'm going for you. If you make that your prayer in your way, we would love to know about that. When you open your eyes in a second, there's gonna be a number on the screen. You can text us. I'm gonna be outside in the front. You can grab me. There's a tile in our app. You can go to that and you can let us know, man, I decided to follow Jesus today. We would love to know about that and help you at the beginning of your journey to give you some tools to move you forward. Jesus, for all of us, we acknowledge that we are incomplete. We acknowledge that we are helpless so often. We acknowledge that we are feeble in every kind of conceivable way, but you are good and loving to us nonetheless. You give us your life, your strength, your grace. You give us your future. You give us inheritance with you. So may we leverage that for your good. And may we think in terms of the psalm, every family of all the nations, right? That you are revealing yourself, not concealing yourself. You're not far, you're near. 
In our hardest times, let us remember you're never absent. You don't abhor the afflicted, but you hear our cries for help. And from that, that gives us courage and stability and motivation to move forward, knowing you are never against us. You are always for us. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your goodness in your name. Amen.